Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of How to Bay Area, the podcast that tells you how to get stuff done right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Keith Menconi. Joining me on this edition is a voice KCBS listeners likely haven't heard before, Mary Hughes. She's one of the people working behind the scenes to keep the KCBS news engine running smoothly with her production work. Mary, thanks for being on the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Today on the show, we're going to be taking on the question of how to preserve queer culture in the Bay Area in an age of constant change. You know, there was a time when the Bay Area was home to highly visible queer communities full of LGBTQ-friendly businesses. And while you do still definitely have plenty of rainbow flags in the Castro, if you look past those obvious symbols, uh, it's fair to say that the character of these areas has changed an awful lot, with many of those businesses shutting down and many of the residents who once called these neighborhoods home pushed out by the high cost of living. So today on the program, we're going to be speaking to the people at ground zero of this change to find out what they feel like they're losing and what they are fighting to preserve. Now, one type of queer-friendly business that's been hit particularly hard in recent decades would be clubs and bars. And that might sound kind of trivial to some of our listeners, but for those that we spoke with, when a nightlife spot closes down, it can be a real blow. For queer, gay culture, the history uh, is, you know, bars and, and clubs have been some of the only spaces where people could come together and be themselves and not risk, you know, having acts of violence done against them or even worse, in some cases, death. That was Tara Haywood. And in a second, we'll also be hearing from Jolene Linsengen. Both of these women say they felt a deep sense of loss when the Lexington Club, a primarily lesbian bar, closed down in 2015. I started going there pretty young, and it was just the, the nightcap kind of place for me. I can play pool, I can meet women, and feel safe. It's like cheers, right, where everyone knows your name. <laughs> A lot of people don't realize that just having that relief at the end of the day, knowing that you can meet a friend there and you won't be harassed or gay bashed or anything, you know? Um, all those pieces, it, I mean, it's, it might sound like nothing for somebody else, you know? Like, oh, it's just a bar. It's not that. It's safety, you know? It's home. But then when the Lexington closed... Saddest day ever. When the Lex closed down, I woke up and saw the news and cried, you know? That's our safe space where you feel at home and, and not judged. We get affected by so many things in our day-to-day. -day. And to end your night in a place where all that disappears, it means, it means a lot. The Lexington also meant a lot to Tara, who we heard from a second ago. She was raised in an Irish Catholic family and she moved to San Francisco from Michigan in her early 20s. I wasn't out when I moved here, um, even though I, I knew since very young, but I tried really hard, you know, to keep that at bay. After arriving in San Francisco, she also found a sense of community. I just loved the diversity, the, the people that were here, and I quickly fell into the queer scene and started going to the Lexington Club and the different women parties and, you know, just saw myself like really change as a person over the first probably five years that I was here. Um, and that will, I guess San Francisco will always be really special to me because it was a place that I felt that I could come out and, you know, be myself. 
But now she wonders if other new arrivals will be able to follow a similar path. It's really hard for like young lost queers from the Midwest to come here. And not that I don't think that that still happens, it's just, it just seems that it's just a lot less accessible. So I think it's, it's interesting to hear there how much has really changed just over the last couple of decades. I mean, Tara didn't come to the Bay Area that long ago. So the world that she's talking about, she's talking about like the 2004, 2005 San Francisco. Right. She's already longing for that. She's already feeling like that's a very distant thing that she she remembers fondly. Now, uh, we've had Mary on now for several minutes and we haven't even introduced her <laughs> to uh, our audience. So now is probably the right time to do so. Mary, tell, tell everyone a little bit about yourself because you actually, I think it would be fair to say, followed a somewhat similar path to Tara. Yeah, somewhat similar. I, I come from initially a uh, born in a very small town in North Carolina. And when you're in an area like that, not only are you, especially as a queer person, looking for community there, but you start kind of idealizing other areas in the world that seem to be this kind of uh, bastion of queer community. And San Francisco is one of those in your mind. Mm. And is that one of the reasons that you decided to move out here? Partially. You know, mm. there was a lot going on in North Carolina at the time that I was making my decision to move. There were a lot of laws kind of happening. The 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 bathroom law that was going on in North Carolina to do with transgendered people. And a lot of friends that I had there understood why I was leaving. They, they felt that coming to California was a better idea for me and the general happiness of my life. So, mm. yeah, it played a huge part. So you've been here for a little bit over a year now. Uh, let's see. I got here in May of 2017. Okay, so a chunk of time. You've gotten to know the region a little bit. You're living in the South Bay uh, with your partner. Correct. Did have things turned out the way you were hoping? What did you find here? Uh, well, as far as me and the partner, they turned out great. <laughs> but um... well, Opa, happy news there. <laughs> uh, but as far as finding queer community and feeling like uh, there are spaces to be a part of that aren't strictly perhaps like in San Francisco or maybe even more directly like in the Castro and stuff like that, um, it's been a bit more difficult. Money plays a part in that a little bit. You know, uh, it, it's not cheap to live in the Bay Area. Um, and there are places that I had heard of that no longer exist anymore here in the Bay. Certain bars, like the Lexington that we just heard about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, was was that the kind of place that you were hoping? Oh to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've been to queer clubs back in North Carolina, and they're fine. Um, but there are certain places that you hear about when you start looking at, like, oh, what if I lived in this city? And in San Francisco, the Lexington was something I had read about in, in magazines. Mm -hmm. And to, to find out that it literally closed, you know, two years before I even get here was it was a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, one of the things that maybe we can hope to do through the course of the conversation here today is talk about some of the people that are there trying to preserve some of the things that you were looking for when you came here. You know, this is all about how to. There are people doing a lot of uh, good work, and I think it would be interesting to figure out how they think about it and how they're trying to accomplish this very difficult task of uh, keeping some of this culture alive. And uh, I want to play another clip from Tara in a second, because I think it kind of illustrates some of the challenges that we're facing here, because, you know, there's a lot of reasons why these businesses might be struggling. We all know that the Bay Area is more expensive than it's ever been. That makes business hard. Uh, but then on uh, there's there's other factors, too. It's not just that. There's also the fact that uh, a lot of dating culture has gone online, whether it's queer dating or any other kind of dating. And so that institution that you once needed, that physical space that you once needed, you don't need it quite as much as you used to. You have other places to go to meet like-minded people. Tara actually points to a, an, another interesting thing. It's not just that things are more expensive. It's not just that things are going online. She says that, in fact, LGBTQ people uh, who could become customers at these bars and clubs at one time would have become customers. Many of them just aren't in the area anymore. But I really think that the biggest piece is that the community is, is gone, you know, that they've had to leave, that they've been displaced 
and and have gone to the East Bay or even further. So there's clearly a lot of different things that keeps a culture healthy, whether it's the people there, whether it's the institutions there, whether it's the businesses there. And if any one of those things is starting to lose its footing just a little bit, you know, there's going to be ripple effects that's really going to change the character of a community and the character of a culture. So with that in mind, with that idea of an ecosystem in mind, uh, we set out on, I guess, a, a little pilgrimage yes. <laughs> into the Castro and other neighborhoods in San Francisco to meet some of the people that right here in 2019 are trying to keep that ecosystem healthy in one way or another, to hear their thoughts about what's worth preserving, how you preserve that, and also, you know, what's being lost and maybe can't be preserved. You know, it, it was really cool to actually go into the Castro. That had only been my second time since I moved here going to that part of San Francisco. And I still felt a little giddy about it. You know, mm. there's there's rainbows everywhere. There's a sense that you could walk hand in hand with your partner and not have to worry about it a little bit. Uh, stores and, and restaurants that just clearly... They're not catering just to queer people, but there's mm. this feeling that you've kind of stumbled into a little utopia of of queerness, and it still felt very new to me, so yeah. I loved it. Well, it was nice to bring you on f- along for a little reporter trip. I'm sorry that you're always cooped up here at the station. <laughs> me too, sometimes. Nice to get you yeah. out in the field, even though it wasn't very far afield, but nice to get you out in the field nonetheless. Now, on the first leg of that trip, uh, the, the, the part of that ecosystem that we're talking about today that we focused on is the culture. And uh, we thought that if, you know, we're going to understand how that culture has been shifting over the years, it would be good to first ground ourselves in some history. So where better to get yourself grounded in history than in a museum? Okay, so we're in the GLBT Historical Society Museum. We've been here in the middle of the Castro for several years. It's an old laundromat. That's Terry Beswick. He's the executive director of the GLBT Historical Society located in the Castro. I actually used to get picked up by the dryers in the back over here when I was much younger. But now we occupy it with a place to show our queer history. Terry was nice enough to give us both a little tour of the museum. So in in the front here we have a couple of temporary exhibits. This one I'm particularly excited about. Now, Terry came of age as a civil rights activist, advocating for causes related to the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. And for him, much of the history reflected in this museum hits very close to home. So it's really interesting to me now that I've reached a certain age where I see my youth represented on the walls of a history museum. Uh, but In fact, many of his friends can be seen in a photograph exhibit lining one of the museum's walls. So I recognize uh, some of the people, you know, in these photographs, but really what they capture is, despite it being in the, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, there was a spirit of celebration and uh, empowerment um, and joy also. Another thing that you can find at this museum are artifacts from some of those long-shuttered queer businesses. And we have a huge matchbook collection of matchbooks from different bars. So it's a good place to get a sense of how much San Francisco has changed over the decades. When I was in my 20s, uh, you know, Valencia Street, I mean, that was that was the lesbian place to go. And now you can't recognize it. It's it, it, I, I don't know that there's anything left, maybe a couple of plaques. But, you know, and plaques are important, but uh, it's no longer a lesbian uh, neighborhood or destination. All right. So we learned a lot during that little tour. Very educational. But we still had some more questions for Terry. In particular, Mary, I think, just wanted to know, based on everything that's been lost, what is she missing out on in her new life here in the Bay Area? Tell us a little bit about what you were telling me. Well, it was the question of living in an area where there is a bigger queer community. I live in San Jose in the Willow Glen area, and I know there's pockets of queer community there, but walking through here, it, re- it just sort of wakes up in me this urge and need to be closer to the queer community, but the realization that I, that I couldn't afford to live in this area mm-hmm. myself, and even San Jose, of course, is a bit costly as well, but I think what would it, what would it have been like to come here back 10, 20, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and what kind of community could I have found at that point in time that, that maybe is different now? 
Well, uh, you know, I'm from the Bay Area, uh, and uh, yet I didn't move here until I was 21, and this is in the early 80s. I'm kind of dating myself now, but uh, in uh, the early 80s, you could move to San Francisco and rent a flat for a couple hundred dollars, you know, and share it with people, Um, and you could, you know, go to school and work part-time as a barista or whatever, and uh, and and get by, you know, and that's that's what I did uh, for several years. And uh, you could also become an activist, and not worry about you know paying the rent as much as you know you would have to nowadays. And I, I you know worked full time as an unpaid activist for a few years. You know, and later I took work uh, as an activist, but uh, you know. The uh, things are much different now. I mean, I, I, I live in the neighborhood. I live across the street, and I actually share a flat with a few roommates. Um, I'm in my late 50s, and so that kind of feels like I'm living like a college student. It's a little bit annoying, you know, and please, you know, don't piss on the floor and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but, you know, my rent is affordable. And, you know, coming from uh, somewhere else and landing in San Francisco is, is much different now. And there's, there's actually fewer queer people on the street. Um, there's fewer that live here yeah, okay. and work here. Uh, there are a lot of uh, visitors to the Castro, and many of them are queer. But and you know we don't ask everyone when we walk down, "Do you live here? Are you queer?" Um, but uh, but you you definitely get the impression over time, and everybody knows that there's far fewer uh, gay people who uh, live here. We lost a lot of people to AIDS, of course, who had moved into the Castro and either rented or bought uh, property, fixed it up. Um, and who replaced those people, you know? Um, a lot of times uh, they were not queer people. You know, when I see a queer person uh, or a couple move into the neighborhood now, um, you know, I feel like throwing a block party yeah, for them or like something. a moment to rejoice, yeah. <laughs> so it's very different now, um, um, and yet, you know, I think we can kind of take it for granted. People still recognize it and experience it as a, a place... A destination for you if 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 you've as particularly if you've suffered from discrimination or or alienation wherever you're from. So this right here would actually be a good place to bring up the the main reason that we are speaking to Terry Beswick today because he's actually involved in I guess one of the ways that San Francisco is trying to address some of these cultural preservation concerns. Uh, San Francisco is actually right now making a, a, a pretty big push to create what they're calling cultural preservation districts. Uh, those are essentially areas that will promote this or that community uh, through a number of different kinds of works, whether it be monuments or or building preservation, cultural preservation, uh, support that's going to be going out to various artists in the community. Terry is helping to set up one such district in the Castro. And our intentions are not so much explicitly like to keep the Castro queer for the sake of, you know, uh, having a queer space as it is to make it, you know, a place that queer people can will want to go to and can go to if they want to. The city already has six cultural districts honoring various community groups, and two of them are dedicated to preserving LGBTQ culture, Compton's Transgender Cultural District and the Leather and LGBTQ District. But now, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors just voted unanimously to designate the Castro as the newest cultural preservation district for LGBTQ culture. So ours is about queers. It's kind of a blunt answer, but Terry admits the term queer has meant different things to different people in the Castro. There's a a reputation of it being about uh, not queers so much as uh, gay white boys. Um, And and a lot of people have felt like they're not uh, part of that uh, conversation. They're not part of the community in in a way that's welcome. And there is a historical basis for that in terms of bars uh, going back to the 70s um, and even in recent years of, of uh, being unwelcoming in explicit uh, and implicit ways towards uh, people of color and women um, and straight people, uh, incidentally. So it's a complicated project. 
Terry says it's expected in the first year to get three to four hundred thousand dollars worth of money. Some of that will go towards cataloging historic sites or anything from building preservation to setting up mentorships for queer youth. But one thing that he might not be too keen to spend that money on is one that you might not expect. You know, I actually don't care so much about the rainbow uh, uh, crosswalks and the flags. Um, I mean, I love the rainbow flag and Gilbert Baker, the creator of the gay flag, is a friend of mine. And um, and I think it's an important symbol of diversity for the uh, queer community. And yet it's a little bit of overkill for me. Um, a little bit of overkill. I mean, did you feel like there was overkill when you were watching? I, <laughs> I mean, to me, it was it was kind of neat. But then again, I, I I'm coming from a small town in North Carolina. You don't see rainbow right. anything unless you're the queer person putting that sticker on your car. That's a good point. That's <laughs> a good point. So that aesthetic critique that he's making right there, it actually raises some other interesting questions at the heart of this project that make this all a little bit more complicated. Uh, The question of how do you use a government project, this top-down thing, to control something that's usually really bottom-up? Like culture, nobody tells you what culture to have most of the time. The culture just kind of bubbles up organically. So how can this, how can the city decide what the character of this neighborhood is going to be? And if the changes do just go surface deep, if it is really just... Let's slap on some more rainbow flags, as welcoming as Mary finds them to be, (laughs) as welcoming as they might be. If it only goes surface deep, uh, Terry wonders, who will all this work really be for? There is a real danger, actually, um, and we've seen this in other communities uh, around the country. um, You know, where a business district um, that's based around an ethnic community uh, or a minority community... um, wants to really capitalize on the tourist attraction of, of, of a neighborhood, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you, know, you know, Puerto Rican or whatever it is. And so they'll, they'll like build it up and, you know, put up, up some cultural assets like our rainbow flags, um, advertise it um, as such. And some of it is organic, but some of it is kind of like intentional as an urban planning thing to uh, uh, monetize and Disneyfy. Uh, a, a neighborhood, and so we are actually seeing that effect already in the Castro. And the danger is that um, as it becomes more attractive to visitors, more attractive to investors um, uh, who want to buy property, uh, that the property values will go up, the rents will go up, and the people who were actually being celebrated to begin with are displaced even further. And so what we run the danger of doing is actually working against our own interests by uh, sort of feeding into that. So this is by no means an easy project. There's a lot that you could do wrong, a lot obviously that you could do right, but there's you know so many different variables to think about here. And I asked Terry, you know, in the face of all that complexity, why even set out to try to do something this difficult? Why is it important to preserve this thing in the first place? And he says, you know, you're going to get a different answer to that question depending on who you ask. But for him, one of the main impetuses for doing preservation work is because he just personally, he has a very personal connection to this particular place. I grew up in this neighborhood um, and I um, uh, lost a lot of people. I think about a lot of the loss they were experienced and also a lot of the struggle. I'm really proud of everything that we did uh, to fight AIDS and to organize for gay rights in this neighborhood um, collectively. And a lot of that is associated with the places. So why is it important that we continue to have a gay neighborhood? I think it's because person-to-person contact is still really important and the best form of communication. (laughs) And part of it is just that ineffable, emotional, spiritual attachment. You know, it's like asking, you know, is there anything special about being queer besides, you know, who you f***? And also, you know, I don't want to diminish the fact that You know, a lot of it is subconscious, but, um, you know, it should be like 
a natural thing that's not commented on to express just for example a, you know physical affection for someone of the same sex and so and I what I want to say is that you know you, you can do it in this neighborhood without looking over your shoulder but the farther away that you get um, the maybe the less uh, safe that is and so it's everything it's like you know from you know artistic aesthetics um, and, 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 and music and theater um, and those kind of like obvious examples to um, a capacity for empathy so I think that's why we kind of gravitate together for a, a number of different reasons And that was Terry Beswick once again, executive director of the GLBT Historical Society, speaking to us at the museum. That is the GLBT Historical Society Museum. So that was one side of cultural preservation that we just heard there. But then there's just the blunter question of how do you keep the people that make up a community physically in the community? And keeping people in a place means giving them somewhere to live. So the next part of this cultural ecosystem that we're going to turn our attention to is housing. To help us out, we paid a visit to Brian Basinger. He's the executive director of the Q Foundation. We protect the housing that people already have. We provide resources to help people secure new housing. And then we promote public policy to expand opportunity for everybody. Now, the Q Foundation has a special focus on preventing homelessness in the queer community, as well as people living with HIV AIDS. So Brian brings the advocacy perspective. And he told us that when you dig into the numbers of homelessness in San Francisco, it's clear that the problem is hitting the LGBTQ community especially hard. And the numbers from a 2017 homeless count in San Francisco bear this out. According to those city-backed figures, about 30% of homeless respondents identified as LGBTQ. Compare that to the city as a whole, where LGBTQ people make up just 15% of the overall population. Everywhere you look, we're carrying this extreme burden that is out of proportion um, with our population and um, out of proportion with the burden that other communities are carrying. And he says there's a reason for the high rates of homelessness among people with HIV. Because we have nowhere else to go. Straight people have the whole world, but um, people who have complicated medical needs, like HIV and AIDS, we can't go to Kansas. It is a complicated request to suggest that people go back to a place they escaped from. And there's a lot of people who can't do that. They would rather be homeless on the street because the trauma that they experienced out there was so severe that they just can't psychologically go back. It's too threatening. Speaking there once again to Brian Basinger. He's the executive director of the Q Foundation. So one way to push back against homelessness and housing uncertainty is through advocacy. That's the route that Brian obviously is taking. The other way, though, is through community building. And that's the route adopted by our next guest, Juanita Moore. Uh, say your name and how you want to be identified on air. Hi, I'm Juanita Moore, and I'd like to be identified as Juanita Moore. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> we, can, we can make that happen for you. Good. Miss <laughs> Moore is a drag queen, a philanthropist, and something of a community organizer. We visited her lovely San Francisco home to learn about the Facebook group that she started, Juanita's List. Now, this is pretty interesting. Because as we've heard, the online world has done a fair amount of disrupting of the traditional bonds of queer communities. Well, she's flipped the script on that and actually used social media to draw a community together. So this is what she did. The group, Juanita's List, is aimed at connecting people to a community of housing opportunities that would be welcoming to LGBTQ people. And it's been going strong since 2014. 
Moore says what prompted her to create it was the change that she was seeing in her own community. Just down the street here from me for quite a few years was Larkin Street Youth Center, and I was super aware of young queer kids coming into my neighborhood because I'd see them every day, and was super concerned about what their next step was because their next step to me visually was, you're gonna be living on the street and you're gonna be hustling. It was kind of heartbreaking when I know they were arriving here with bigger dreams and just had no way to make it or survive. I I look at my life here and I was lucky to settle into the apartment I'm in now and want other people to find that. And it's not that easy. Juanita settled in San Francisco in the 80s. As we mentioned, we did the interview in her apartment, and it is indeed pretty sweet. The group is now 6,500 members strong, and to hear her tell it, this whole thing has taken a lot of work. It's so much to manage. (laughs) It's a full-time job. I used to drink two or three cups of coffee in the morning, just going through the list and getting rid of the robots and, um, you know, accepting people. But it all comes naturally to Juanita. In fact, the idea for the project really stems from her own experiences when she first came to San Francisco. Queer-friendly housing for me um, really does date back to when I first came to San Francisco and was looking for an apartment. I mean, we were um, us, we were all young and kids and trying to find a really reasonable place to live. And we were all queer and we were all interested in the same stuff. So it's interesting that even at that time, which is uh, the early 80s that I moved to San Francisco, um, that we were looking for places to um, be together. And we were already considering ourselves a little family of friends, right? So... Um, it's going all the way into today, that's on, the only way that I've known how to look for housing was through um, other queers and other family. Um, because I'm out all the time socially, I started to hear all the time, like, I've lost my apartment or I need an apartment. My friend's moving here. And I'd be out at a club working and I'd look to my left and go, this guy just said he has a room available and now I don't see him. And I see someone over there who said they need a room. And and, and I'm also that kind of odd person that really can connect people and know that they're the right connection. I wouldn't send someone over to someone if I didn't think it was going to work. Yeah. Um which is um, why I started the housing list on uh, Facebook to join people together. That's the kind of show I would like to see on HGTV instead of the regular house hunters. Just mm. Juanita's house hunting show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, imagine what you'd find. Exactly. And uh, I mean, I, I, we, we, we've already mentioned it once, but like we were both blown away when we walked into her apartment. It's it was super gorgeous. duper nice. Yeah. So cool. It was a basement apartment, but like it had so much light in it. and So it, much light. It had a little garden outside. And uh, she has the cutest bulldog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's pretty interesting because there's another side to all this. Housing is, of course, important in its own right. But this work is also about growing a real community with strong connections. And from Juanita's point of view, stable housing and community really go hand in hand. I constantly been asking people in the group to come out and meet me. I want to meet them. I want to know why you moved to San Francisco, why you're here. And I feel like by them joining this group that I've created, you're going to become part of my community and part of my family and part of what I've created in this city. And hopefully that's why you want to be a part of it, too. And again, for Juanita, the flip side of community strength is political strength. Yeah, I want I want people to be politically active. It's the only way that we're going to progress and make change. And I want people to register to vote. And every, every voting season, I put out a voting guide. And here's where this all ties together. You know, housing, community building, political clout. Because Juanita believes that the demographic shift we've seen really has had an impact on how political power is wielded in San Francisco. Mark Leno losing to London Breed should have never happened. That should have just never happened. For those not up on San Francisco politics, Mark Leno was the first openly gay man elected California's state Senate. He was defeated in the race for mayor of San Francisco by London Breed in 2018. So let's dig into the demographics of all this. Well, what I've noticed with the housing group, um, which, you know, wasn't 
wasn't the way it was when I first moved here. Everybody flocked and wanted to live in the Castro and just be in the neighborhood or around Polk Street. Um, but now, because of um, the price of living here, queer people are living wherever they can. So I'm seeing people rent places that are in the avenues in North Beach and Chinatown and Bayview. Like, it's not concentrated anymore. And that's that's a change that's happening in the city. What do you think is lost when you lose that concentration that you're talking about? When when the community is diffuse geographically and there is no that there, there isn't that focal point anymore. What's lost? Power. Power's lost. Um Bringing people together. I mean, in the in in the 70s, Cleve Jones has told me that it was who's, who's Cleve Jones. Cleve Jones is an activist here in San Francisco um, who did arrive here in the 70s, um, a great leader, a great friend, um, and said during the 70s, when um, when a, when a call to action was happening, it was people on their home phones, like a chain of people calling each other to to rally and thousands of people would get together um, in the Castro. So, And sometimes it was just standing on a corner and telling people and flyering or something. Um, but everyone was living within that area, so it was easy to walk out your doors and be there. So I found that really interesting, talking about those phone trees. You know, that's kind of the old way of getting organized. One person calls a few more people, they call more people, on and on and on, and it just, you know, balloons from there. I think this Facebook group that we have now, it's not too different from that old way of getting organized. It's kind of just like a modernized version of those phone trees in a way. So, you know, in that way, there isn't really necessarily quite as much discontinuity as you would think at first. Now, Mary, uh, you actually came into this conversation with a, a lot of questions for Juanita, and I think you actually got some useful advice along the way, too. I did, yeah. It, it if The biggest thing for me was just this sense of what you need to do to become active in the community, what you can do to kind of pay forward perhaps your own good fortune in some way. And uh, I think you got some good advice uh, right here from Juanita. Let's listen into that. Are you do you want to move up to the city? Are you considering I mean, it? Or when when I walked around Castro, yeah. there's that feeling of like, oh wow, this is really great to know that you can be completely open at all times yeah. and not feel like like someone could come down on you because of it Mm -hmm. and but my partner and i live where we live and that's you know it's probably going to stay that way unless the economy goes a completely different direction true True. i mean i've got a lot of friends that have um, moved out of the city and bought homes out of the city um, within the last 10 years that are you know my my age and have been living here for 20 years so um it's it's part of growth too yeah (laughs) i think another thing that mary was telling me though is that it's not obvious to her. She would like to contribute to some way to the community or get engaged politically, perhaps. So, I mean, what what, what are you telling young folks in uh, Mary's position for how they can get engaged? I don't know. Maybe Mary needs to start a housing group down there in San Jose. This might be a bigger day than we thought it was. Um, I mean, yeah, that's a, you know, that would be a good, a good start is to start some sort of community thing that starts connecting people together. Yeah. I mean, I could go for that. A little bit of inspiration for you there, maybe? Yeah, you know, I was thinking to myself just yesterday, you know, what could I call if I wanted to start a list like that for the San Jose area? And I was just like, I could call Oh, you're already on to coming up with names. (laughs) You've gone further with this than I thought. I had no idea. I mean, I, you know, let's not oversell it too much. I haven't gone that far. I was thinking to myself, oh, well, you could keep it simple and just be like, Mary's list. You know, and Mary is a is a nice antiquated queer term anyway. <laughs> okay, all right, Some all right. Queer slang there. All right. Or I could, you know, I could endeavor to get more clever and not mm-hmm. just be a carbon copy of what uh, <laughs> Juanita Moore has been doing. I mean, I feel like list at this point is trademarked. Like I don't know, I don't know if I would jump back on the list bandwagon. Maybe not. Maybe not. So definitely some useful information in that conversation for Mary that she's walking home with. Uh, But we're not going to leave our listeners empty-handed either. Uh, This is the part of the show where we are really going to lean into the how-to 
portion of How To Bay Area. Uh, and uh, jumping back to Brian Basinger, the executive director of the Q Foundation, I asked him, you know, what is it that you would really hope somebody who's struggling with housing, somebody, a member of the LGBTQ community, maybe they're struggling with housing, maybe they're homelessness, maybe they're looking for resources. What is the information that you would hope that they would have? And uh, here's how he answered that question. People who live or work in San Francisco absolutely should go to um, what's called Dahlia. Um, it's actually the city's official flower. And it's at the Mayor's Office of Housing um, and Community Development website. And that's where they can get on a list to apply for all of the affordable housing, below market rate opportunities through the city. For people who live in San Francisco and who are have an unlawful detainer because they haven't been able to pay rent, um, and if their income is $50,000 a year or less for a single person, or if they've been approved for, um, uh, if they won one of these lotteries, or if their name comes to the top of an affordable housing list, they can actually go to our website, theqfoundation.org. Um, there's a place called Services, and then um, this thing called a Q screener. So um, people can self-refer into our organization by going to our website, answering a couple of questions. They can take a picture of their ID and their income documents, their lease, um, all of that stuff, and upload it right there um, and really help expedite access to those services. Um, for people in the outlying areas, resources are fewer. Um, housing costs are less, but it's it's also um, fewer and farther between. Now, we did ask around for some services and support that you can find outside of San Francisco. Uh, I actually got in touch with the Bill Wilson Center. It's a service organization largely focused on young people. And they do have a couple of housing support programs specifically focused on uh, LGBTQ, especially youth. Uh, so one of those would be uh, their LGBTQ uh, host homes program. Another one would be the LGBTQ transitional living program that they have. So definitely Definitely a good organization to get in touch with if you need support. Again, that's the Bill Wilson Center. And at the same time, uh, they pointed me in the direction of Life Moves, which is another service organization focused on uh, homelessness as well. They just opened an LGBTQ homeless shelter for adults in downtown San Jose. That one is actually funded by the County of Santa Clara. So nice work being done there. Again, that's Life Moves. They have a nice website. Uh, you can get in touch with them there. And we should also give a plug. Uh, there is another uh, Facebook website in the Bay Area that's fostering LGBTQ community. Uh, that is Gay Area Housing. You're, you really need to step up your naming game. I know, Mary. right? I need to come up with something much better than just Mary's List. The That's bar, not the bar cut has it. been set pretty high at this point, <laughs> right. Mary. Uh, so once again, uh, that is gay area housing. So a lot of different uh, services and support out there. We're going to put links to some of this on our website. So go to kcbsradio.com. Look for How to Bay Area, and uh, you can find some of that information there as well. All right. So we have been on a little bit of a journey today. Yeah. We visited a lot of different people doing a lot of interesting work, trying to keep that cultural ecosystem alive and well in San Francisco. And we know a lot of people are doing similar work in other cities around the Bay Area, around the country. After hearing all that, you know, we heard a little bit about what you were looking for when you came to the Bay Area. What do you feel about what you learned? Do you feel more positive, less positive? What's what's the what's the overall feeling Mary is feeling right now? <laughs> the overall Mary feeling. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit, I think, both, which you kind of hear in parts of, of the conversations that we got to have during our, our queer pilgrimage around the Bay Area, is that there's that little bit of sadness that certain cultural institutions are no longer around. Some of the things that were such a huge part of queer history aren't necessarily here anymore. And yet, one of the greatest things that can happen, I think, in any community, but in particular, as a queer person in the LGBTQ community, is the evolution of the way people find that way to build community with each other. 
Mm. So you you feel like that adaptation is giving you yeah you're, you're taking heart in that in some well, ways. Well, yeah, and you know something that is mentioned in this in this episode is the fact that you know some of how people now meet and socialize has been transferred to online as opposed to going to bars. That's how I met my partner was online. So I I can I see the value in letting things shift and move to adapt to the times that we're in. But I also I still see the merit in holding on to what makes our community what it is, what got us here in the first place. Yeah. And it's always going to be a little bit of a tug and pull of doing both and uh, trying to adapt what the best of what you once had to the realities of what you have right now. And on that note of adaptation, I think a good place to close out the show is returning to the place where we first started. Uh, listeners are going to remember that at the top of the show, we spoke to two women who developed a very close connection to the Lexington Club. Uh, that Mary was disappointed was closed. Sadly missed out on. (laughs) Sadly missed out on. Uh, Again, that was closed in 2015. Well, both of those women are actually in the mix of people trying to keep queer nightlife alive in San Francisco. We didn't mention this at the top, but they're both uh, bar owners themselves. Jolene is the owner of the recently opened Jolene's Bar. That's a queer bar in the mission. Uh, So that's one bar created. And Tara Haywood, she's part of a group of people that rushed to save another bar from closure back in 2016 uh, when that bar faced down a huge spike in its rent. So... That's one bar saved. I just didn't want to stand by and watch another queer bar close and continue to see the San Francisco that I fell in love with when I moved here in 2004 just completely disintegrate. She's referring there to The Stud. That's a bar that's been around for a long, 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 long time. Uh, 1966, it's been around. That's get, amazing to me. Uh, uh, yeah. That's awesome. It's mind-boggling. <laughs> Also mind-boggling, the stud, another great example of a of a, a, an excellent name that we've encountered <laughs> on true. this program. Now, what's interesting here is both Jolene and Tara say that to keep their businesses healthy, they've got to adapt too. This is where the adaptation comes in that we were referring to a second ago, and what that means for them is branching out beyond the LGBTQ community because there just isn't that cultural density anymore. You really do need a lot of people living close together to support that kind of a business. And uh, now that it's gone, uh, Tara says to pay the bills, the stud is now needing to include parties that don't just cater to its more typical LGBTQ clientele. You know, we try to, to have a happy hour that might appeal to some of our neighbors, which is largely the tech community. And we we have an earlier drag show that we have out on, you know, Groupon and Eventbrite and that we try to encourage birthday parties and tourists and stuff to come to. Of course, she does want to keep the bar a very welcoming place for people of the queer community, but there's a balance that she has to strike now. Yeah, I mean, as much as I like have this like separatist mentality sometimes, I know that it's not the way that it's going to work for the future. So yeah, in terms of bringing communities together, I do think that it is one of our only options for for the survival of the stud. Now, you kind of heard a sigh in uh, Tara's voice right there. There's maybe a little bit of ambivalence about losing some of uh, that special community feeling that uh, was once there. But she also said it's kind of nice to see some people maybe meet each other that wouldn't have met each other before, bringing more people together. And that's also something that I heard from Juanita Moore. She told me that she does see some advantage to the mixing and the matching of all this. And she's seeing more and more of that as those dense neighborhoods that uh, we once had are giving way to queer communities that are more spread out through more neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, she's obviously she's got her finger on the pulse of this as somebody who's watching the housing situation very closely. I know it's change, but I tend to accept change and move forward with it. Um, and I feel like, well, this is it's actually kind of great because now you have a group of queers living out in the sunset that are sharing their lifestyle around people that aren't normally used to it. Even if they're living in San Francisco, they're probably not used to just seeing queers on the street. So um, I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I've, always, I've always sort of had this... Um, sort of weird thing in the back of my head where I 
at some, well, especially now with um, with the way things are in our in our country, I wish that everyone could go home for a month and really just be themselves in their town and get accepted. Mm. Um, that's my dream. <laughs> you think we'd all calm down a little bit if we didn't have that constant <laughs> antsy feeling of alienation or something? I would hope so. Yeah, it's a dream for sure. Yeah. So a, a lot to chew over there, a lot to think about. I, I don't know. After hearing all that, after going on that little journey, are, are, are you happy down there in San Jose? Do you feel like you can find what you're looking for? You know, I think it's possible to find what I'm looking for. It's a matter of, one, looking in the right places and actually being willing to step up and step out there and, yeah. and see what you can do, how you can contribute in some way. And maybe you got a little bit of inspiration in that. You just need to find the right name for the thing. That's right. Obviously, with all the names that I've heard in all our conversations with people, I really do need to sit down and, and come up with something pretty fantastic is what I'm thinking. If you only learned one thing in this conversation today. Names mean something. <laughs> all right. We're going to have to round things out there. You've been listening to How to Bay Area, a production of KCBS Radio in San Francisco. You can find past episodes of the program online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. Please, if you do check us out on iTunes, leave a rating and review if you like the program. It helps more people discover it and also just makes us feel good. Uh, again, you can find more links to some of the resources that we mentioned earlier on the program on our webpage for this episode. Uh, so check that out at kcbsradio.com. Also want to give a special thanks to uh, Housing Trust Silicon Valley. That's a nonprofit working to promote affordable housing in the region. They actually pointed us in the direction of some of the resources that we mentioned in the program. So again, big thank you to Housing Trust Silicon Valley. That's going to do it for KCBS. I'm Keith Menconi. And I'm Mary Hughes. And we'll see you next time. LGBTQ clientele. LGBTQ clientele. You try to say it. It's hard. LGBTQ clientele. Oh, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs>